I'm David Clayton, and this is the Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. This is episode 16, Feminism and Femininity. Uh, so, Carrie Gress, great to see you. Thank you, um, it's great to see you. <laughs> and I thought I'd, just before we get into the, the topic itself, you are, of course, a philosopher, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'd just be very interested uh, if you if you could uh, just summarize for us the course that you created for uh, Pontifex University, the Master of Sacred Arts program, mm-hmm. uh, which is slightly different from the, uh, what you, you're writing about at the moment right. in general, right. but um, I think really in the long run could be just as uh, significant a contribution. Mm-hmm. So sure. Perhaps, yeah. Yeah, no, I um, I put together this course. It's a survey course on beauty, truth, and goodness, starting back at the ancient Greeks and kind of going all the way through the medievals and up to the Enlightenment and sort of um, just seeing the relationship between these three things. I think um, we know through our faith that they're tightly, tightly interwoven with one another. And yet, if we look at our own culture, people don't really think of them as part of the same thing. Um, so I was really curious to just go back and look ex- exactly, you know, what did the Greeks say about this? And of course, they understood them to be kind of um, convertible, as they would say, as we'd use in philosophical jargon, but basically saying that, you know, everything that's true is beautiful. Everything that's good is true. You know, all of those terms can yeah. be used interchangeably. They're just kind of referring to different aspects of, of a thing. And um, so that you, it, it's kind of this insight starts with the ancients and they lay out some beautiful groundwork, but of course it's not the full flourishing of it because you don't have Christ brought into the picture. Right. And then you look at the medievals and it just kind of explodes this beautiful image of beauty, truth, and goodness together. But all of them are, are really a representation of how, what God is interjecting into the created world. Um, and so this is why they, they, they all sort of seem to meld into each other and, and work off of one another. But it's, it's part and parcel because of the fact that they are an expression of God's um, goodness, of his essence itself. Um, and then, of course, moving along to see what happened after um, the medieval flourishing, we can see this real um, just falling apart of, of the project and um, just this decimation that has happened. This is why I think we're so confused generally is because we don't, um, we've, we've bought into a lot of the enlightenment ideas that um, certainly didn't understand beauty, truth, and goodness. So I think the course looks at trying to sort of repackage it. How do we start thinking about these things again um, in terms of our Christian faith instead of, um, you know, radical enlightenment thinkers who certainly didn't have any love for the Christian faith or even mm-hmm. solid philosophy. And in some ways it's, it's um, exciting for me that as far as I'm aware, this, this approach is unique, following these things through the mm-hmm. course of history. But in many ways, it's sad. It, it's, it's difficult mm-hmm. to get hold of books or uh, right. passages that really discuss these things um, mm-hmm. properly. Mm-hmm. This is actually what led me onto the path that I'm on. Mm-hmm. Because I yeah. just thought, well, you know, where's the textbook on beauty? And yes. I didn't find anything at all that was no. satisfactory. Yeah. It is, and it's it's incredibly discouraging. I know that was one of the real struggles for putting this this course yeah. together. Was it's not like there was some kind of a textbook. I had to really pull from, uh, you know, the, the great length of my own philosophical background, and then, you know, kind of just look at what resources were there and pull from even a lot of secular sites. But um, yeah, it's it's de- there's definitely nothing like it that I that I've seen, and I'd love to eventually get a book out on it because I think that it's, um, it, it can be hugely helpful for, for artists and people that love beauty, want to go deeper, want to understand it better. 
and who love our faith. So that's kind of, it's, it's really foundational in that respect. Right. Well, I would certainly look forward to a book coming out on that subject. <laughs> and I, I'm hoping that Pontifex University Press might be Yes, we'll get there hopefully one of these days. <laughs> okay. Yes. Right. So let's move on now to um, one of the, the current projects that you're involved in, which mm -hmm. I think is, is very exciting. Helena Daly. Mm -hmm. If you just describe to us the uh, what caused you to sure. begin this and where this sits uh, in the general spectrum, if you like, of discussion on the on the topics which is feminism, femininity, right, women in today's society. If, if sure. Yeah. No, you know, it's funny when I was working on my PhD, I, I pretty much swore off wanting to work on women's issues. I just thought it was incredibly boring and. Um, I didn't like the jargon. I didn't think it really, you know, and, and these reasons I couldn't have articulated at that point, but I think I found it very dry and um, so, and really inapplicable to most of everyday women's lives. And so um, I, I swore it off. I said, I'm never going to work on women's issues. Um, you know, this was years ago, but of course, you know, God got the last laugh, but it, it wasn't until I became a mother that I realized, first of all, there's there's huge gap in, in talking about um, women's life as, moms and recognizing that we're we're cultivating virtues through this experience motherhood is meant to be hard and I think you know for the first probably year of my life as a mom I kept thinking it was gonna get easier next week you know next week it'll be easier I won't have someone won't be sick or I won't have morning sickness or whatever and um, it just never got easier and then it finally got easier when I realized it's not supposed to get easier that in fact motherhood is really supposed to be this very natural way that, that God sloughs off the rough edges of our, our youthful life and, um, and our selfishness. And so um, that really got me looking at motherhood in a very different direction. And eventually I started a blog called My Favorite Catholic Things. And I, I, I know I've published a lot extensively in the Catholic world. And I, I know what articles I can get into the aggregate sites that will then kind of take them beyond the, the initial site. But when I would write pieces that were related to, um, you know, say a beautiful piece of jewelry or piece of art or something, um, these sites weren't really that interested in picking them up. And I thought, how do I, where, where's, the, where's the women's site that I can um, go to with these, these fun pieces that I know women will appreciate? And I realized there wasn't one at all. And yet at the same time, look at how much women love magazines. I mean, even if you look at every other, um, the item that has been in print is now online, except for maybe a few newspapers, but all women's magazines are still in print. And yes, lar by large part, they're subsidized by things like the, the $4 billion birth control industry and whatnot. Um, and that's what keeps them at the checkout stands and at, at um, you know the airport gift shops. But the fact that you have all of this interest that women put in magazines, and yet we didn't have something that was an aggregate site for women, um, Catholic women, really struck me as this major hole. And so I ended up developing Helena Daily as a response to that. It's a, you know, it's a 10 every day, five days a week, we produce, uh, we put together 10 different articles. Five of them are, are faith-based generally, and then the other five are um, usually from secular sites, but there are things that we try to make sure that there isn't you know, awful ads with it, or um, there isn't, you know, the content is, is actually really um, edifying instead of denigrating. Um, so that's what we're doing. And I think also too, even within the church, there's not a recognition that, um, women's lives are incredibly material. And, um, so we're being fed in that respect from secular sources. Mm. Uh, and it, so we're, 
but, and that's not to say that the church should do that. It's just to recognize as Catholic women that we need to do this for ourselves. We need to recognize that our lives are very practical. They involve things like doing laundry and feeding people. And if we kind of ignore those things, then our, our own, or if we're going elsewhere for them, then things kind of limp and um, we can do a better job as Catholic women to kind of feed each other instead of trying to always um, feel like we have to go somewhere else that, you know, especially when we have to go somewhere else and it's usually offending our faith um, one way or another um, as we thumb through these things. So that's kind of was the real motivation behind it at this point. Mm. And how's it going? What's, what, how do, what, are you finding that people are interested yeah, no, it's um, it, it's continuing to grow. It's been fun. Um, you know, it's become at this point very word word of mouth, and I think the women are, are really seeing that it's kind of a niche, um, that that nobody else is doing. And so I think that that's that been a fun aspect of it. And we've actually already developed a new idea. I wrote, I published an article about six weeks ago in the Catholic thing uh, called the, a theology of home. And, um, so we are, um, to the other women that I've developed Helena daily with the, the three of us are, are actually going to be working on a book called the theology or theology of home. And, um, I think that kind of overrides a lot of what it is that we're doing, that there, there really is this longing in the human heart for home. And, mm. um, you know, we're seeing people responding to that. They want a sense of home and they're responding to it by, you know, the boom in HGTV, um, shows and DIY and all of this, this really, um, kind of that human heart saying we want more, but we're not really sure how to get it because we can only do it on the on a on a um, material plane. But if we look at theology of home as something bigger, um, as really a desire that Christ put or God the Father put in our hearts for our ultimate home with Him, um, then we can see it kind of in different terms, and we can put these pl- these pieces in proper perspective. So um, we'll probably end up rebranding the whole site as theology of home, and um, okay. then. Well, the Helena Daily will be the um, the magazine side, and then we're actually working on a retail side at this point too, which is going to be really fun. We're developing a line of products to go to be sold on it as well. So we're having a great time, um, kind of just creating new things that are not currently available in the Catholic market. Right. Uh, just to come back to the theology of home, that that mm-hmm. interested me greatly because, as you know, I've got an interest in the domestic church and right. I, I felt that the this spiritual the, the emphasis on the spiritual as well as the material things that you're describing right. is what turns a house into a home mm-hmm. and um i for anybody not women men families single people right, single. It, it, right. and um through this we are in communion with the the church in a special way then this happens through the sacramental life but uh, it's when we feel at home with ourselves and with other, the people we have that immediate connection. Mm-hmm. That, that is the, the this is how we have a home. And that can be true for somebody living on their own. It's not just mm-hmm. families. Um, right. But what you're describing is a, a special role, I, I think, for women in this. And so mm-hmm. there's two areas I want to um, explore today. One is the, the connection with Mary, which is a special interest you have. And we, you, there's... Mm-hmm. Uh, you have a book called The Marian Option, and, and you were telling me about the new one coming out, and we'll get into that. But also, the response of uh, the women's movement generally, the secular women's movement, feminism, mm-hmm. sort of ideas that you are um, presenting, not altogether positive, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm guessing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not quite. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, and I think that that's what's also kind of brought me back to this idea of, um, of home. And, you know, the funny thing is, of course, everybody has this deep desire for home where they, they feel at home, where they feel loved, where they feel safe, where they feel known. Um, and, the, you know, the, obviously, like you said, that doesn't have to just happen within the family context. Yes. But, um, you know, if we look at that, we, then you, you flip that around and say, well, what about the idea of being a homemaker? I mean, there, there are a few things that are more offensive to the modern woman than to suggest that she ought to be a homemaker. Um, and it, it's sort of ironic because, of course, people, everybody longs for home. Like, they have, you know, maybe we're just all sort of stuck in this very childish notion that somebody else should make the home for us. But, you know, as a, as a mother for myself, I, I feel like it's a great honor to be able to almost, um, you know, reach up in heaven and pull down the essence of God back into our family and for our children to have this experience of safety and of being loved and of being known. Um, and these are the things that God offers us on a wholesale level anywhere that we are at. And yet to be able to bring it back, bring it down to them in their lives that they can actually have a tangible place um, to associate with that kind of love that God gives us is, is really an amazing gift to be able to pass on to people. So um, I think we have to kind of rehabilitate, first of all, that idea of what a homemaker is and what she does. And it's not just a matter of slaving away at the laundry and the cleaning and cooking and all that, which of course, you know, a lot of that's entailed in it, but, and it's happening already. You can even see just the fact that food and cooking is no longer stigmatized as, as slavery. I mean, people love to cook for other people. Mm. Um, you can also see this in the, again, the home movement, knitting is coming back. I mean, all of these kinds of um, beautiful arts that, that women have been involved in that they sort of tossed out the window, um, you know, 50 years ago are now are really coming back into even secular culture. It's not just Catholics who are engaging this. So what I, what I would love to see is it seems like there's this huge chasm between who women are in our contemporary world and then who our lady is. And, and I think that's really what's motivated me. Why is this such a big gap and how do we start bringing them back together again? Obviously she's been the model of femininity. She's been the ideal model of, of living the Christian life. And yet, um, you know, most people sort of see her as this very saccharine statue in the side of a church and don't, can't really relate to her at all. Um, so I think that's part of the bigger project of what I'm working on too, is just to see how do we bring these two pieces that seem very uh, unrelated, you know, back to each other, which will then of course um, improve the culture dramatically. Yes. And we'll get on to your books. In a minute. The, the, as you were speaking, I, I was reminded of some advice I was given years and years ago by someone who was uh, very influential in uh, bringing me into the church, actually, this guy called David, um, who I uh, wrote about in my book, The Vision for You. Mm -hmm. um, and he told me that um, if I wanted to stop being lonely, that what I had to do, um, I thought he was going to give me advice on sort of social skills, how I... <laughs> And what, right. he what he told me was to seek out people who are themselves lonely mm -hmm. and attempt to relieve their loneliness. So he said, mm -hmm. don't go for the popular people, go for mm -hmm. the unpopular and right. extend the hand of friendship to them. Mm -hmm. And they may not accept it, but in the process, they will, uh, that action will help to relieve your loneliness because we mm -hmm. get what we receive. As we give mm -hmm. of ourselves, God comes into the vacuum, so to, so to speak. Right. And it strikes me that that's, uh, I was, th the same principle is there in what you're describing. Mm -hmm. um, and I was talking about this idea, this general principle to 
um, Father Brad Elliott, um, a Dominican priest here in the West Coast. And he said, oh yes, he said, uh, modern society uh, trains us to be consumers. Mm -hmm. We're always sitting there looking at the world around us and thinking, what is it giving me? What is it giving me? Rather than, what can I give? Because Mm -hmm. ultimately the paradox is the more I give, the Mm more I I get. And what, what I'm hearing in what you're saying is that in the making of a home, women have a special gift. Men and women are not the same. And men contribute as well. This is not uh, uh, limited to any one person or type of person. But men and women are different. And perhaps Mm -hmm. women have a special gift Mm -hmm. in this area. And if so, um, they will be more fulfilled as people if they acknowledge it. That's true for anybody. If if we we suppress our gifts, we will be unhappy and unfulfilled. Mm-hmm, exactly. Well, and I think that, um, you know, even looking at the history of the women's movement, you, you know, a lot of the, the, the pain and anguish that women feel and the, their fear of, of being a homemaker isn't their fault. I, I mean, we have 50 years of basically magazines telling us that we're victims because when we believe that we're victims, we have to buy more. We have to, we, we have, you know, there's, we are these consumers um, because we need these products that are, are helping us because we're so broken. And um, so I think we, we've gotten to the stage now where women really do see themselves um, almost first and foremost as victims. Um, and then as a result, anything that requires service from us has got to be, you know, just adding to the victimhood Mm. Um, rather than seeing it as actually this is a way out of um, this narcissism that we've kind of created within ourselves because of the way that the culture has sold it to us. So yeah, it's, uh, it's ironic that that the healing comes from the very place where we think it's just going to get worse. Yes. And, and of course the point that needs to be made and and, uh, you can sort of come in if I've, if I, and contradict if I haven't got this, but that what we're talking about here is choices freely made. It's not about mm-hmm. men forcing women to do this or right. or anything like that. This is about people choosing naturally to mm-hmm. um, the, the roles that are going to make them fulfilled. And if mm-hmm. it happens that some of those correspond to, perhaps in the, the past was enforced, um, which meant right. that some people were not everybody conforms to that general picture and so some people if you're forced to conform that will feel unnatural too for those people right people have to to choose their role so Mm -hmm. in that sense feminism has contributed something good i i think but when it denies the natural choice of people there's Mm -hmm. there's a huge problem And, and to me that's what what seems to be happening today Right. Well, and I think that does go back to also to just the way that God created us and the gifts that he has given us. And um, certainly, you know, the fact that we live in this kind of wealthy society where we have this capacity to choose. I mean, it's fascinating to me because, of course, you know, heaven forbid something dreadful happen. Well, all of a sudden you're going to find very, very quickly that, you know, the men are going to be the ones that are out hunting and out protecting um, the borders of the community and the women are going to be staying put trying to feed people and clothe people and keep people clean. Um, so just the, the fact that we have this luxury of saying, you know, I, I'm just going to be a single person. I'm not going to be involved and I'm just going to do whatever I want is, is an incredible um, luxury and gift that we have to acknowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it's, it's probably, you know, given the cycles of history, it probably is not going to be something that's going to live for much longer given the, the, the threadbareness of our own moral society. But Beyond that, yes, I think absolutely we have this, God has given us this, this vocation and 
Um, you know, to none of us has he given the vocation of permanent victim. That's just not something that yeah. he does. Um, it's, it becomes rather a question of how does God use these wounds in our lives if they, are, if they exist, um, if they're real, uh, to then for his own purposes and, and flip that on its head instead of leaving it as, you know, here's this, um, uh, you know, minority woman who's always struggling and can, can never get out. I mean, I think this is the mentality that a lot of women have just fallen into. Um, so yeah, no, I think that I would agree with you that, that it, it's beautiful that we have these choices and decisions mm-hmm. in this capacity um, to discern. And that's not, we're not talking about some kind of forced slavery here. Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's come to Mary now. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps start just, if you just tell us, uh, we've talked about Helena D- Daly, where you're a regular. Right. We didn't give the address, by the way. That's helenadaily.com. Is That's it? right. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So now your last book, uh, The Marian Option, mm-hmm. uh, perhaps tell us a little bit about this, and then we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll look at the general picture of how she relates to the themes we're discussing, sure. and then your exciting new project, which I, I'm looking forward to hearing about. Yeah, great. Uh, well, Marian Option was really a book that was uh, written in response to Rod Dreyer's book, The Benedict Option. Yes. And, uh, you know, before Benedict's, The Benedict Option came out, I, was, I gave a presentation about it. I was fascinated by, first of all, what Rod Dreyer was saying. I think he, he really hit um, kind of a nerve uh, in the hearts of many Christians, and, and people were fascinated by it. I mean, the topic, uh, the title alone was, was pretty genius. And um, mm-hmm. And I think it, it, it led to a lot of conversations about how do we respond in this culture when things are looking very grim. Um, we've got the secular world really pressing itself in upon us. And um, so I, I'm a huge fan of St. Benedict. And actually, I lived right around the corner from his um, the cell where he had a conversion in Rome for, um, for quite a while. And my yeah. husband was a Benedictine monk for many years, long before we met, and um, huge devotion to them. So I wasn't in any way trying to come after Benedict's project. Um, but at, at the same time, I think if we look at history, we can see at different points that God supplies different saints for, to, to res- as an antidote, really, to respond to certain problems. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me, if you look at history, then Be- Benedict, of course, was the perfect person. As civilization is crumbling away, Benedict came in and sort of, um, uh, you know, kept shielded what the, these seeds of Christianity so that they could then proliferate in the future. Well, we can also see this with St. Francis, you know, the church is being choked by riches and St. Francis comes along and he's um, the little poor man. Um, We can see this with the Jesuits during the time of the Reformation. And so looking then, of course, at our own situation and the role of Mary, it seems like there's been this dramatic uptick both in the attention that Our Lady has gotten from popes, but you can also see significant rise in Marian apparitions and so between these, and furthermore, we also have women who are highly under attack. And I'll talk about that in my, we do talk about my next um, yes. book. But all of these three things sort of seem, it seemed clear that Our Lady could be the response to the age that we're in. And furthermore, all the problems that we are dealing with, whether it's secularism, atheism, Islam, um, you know, you, plagues, disease, whatever, Mary has dealt with them much better than anyone um, throughout history. And we can see this like with the Reconquista of Spain um, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, so many different layers of Our Lady's intercession. So um, it just seemed like you know, Benedict's great, but Our Lady can do all of these things much better. And so it's basically the, my book, The Marian Option, is really a bird's eye view of the many ways throughout the centuries that, that Mary has been involved in um, you know, helping her Christian children, trying to bring 
healing and an, and an increase of, of um, order and, you know, sanctity to a culture. But most importantly, she's just trying to get her children to know her son and to become holy and, and obviously get them to heaven. Um, so that's really what the, the book focuses on is our lady's role in that and why she's such a natural person to, saint to go to, you know, she's not just one saint among others, but there's something very special about her. And that is very poignant and perfect for the time that we're in right now. Right. And then, uh, is there any connection here again, placing devotion to Mary into the context of feminism and femininity? <laughs> Um, yes. It, well, it, yes. Um, and that's, that is what my next book is about. It's called, right. tentatively called, I may get changed, um, Mary or the Anti-Mary, the Battle for the Heart of Women. And, um, you know, this was a book, I, I mentioned this idea of an anti-Mary in the, in the Marian option. I have a chapter on it. And then um, mm. it, it's just was something that was begging for more attention. And so, but the idea being that, um, you know, we always talk about Adam and Eve and then Christ and Mary is the new Adam, the new Eve. Um, so I realized that there was, when we talk about the Antichrist, there's never been a female compliment to it. But if you look at women today, you can see very easily that many of them, I think you could think of five very easily off the top of your head, fit neatly into this category of being an anti-Mary. And um, so I started digging into this idea, not as a person or an individual, uh, an individual anti-Mary figure like John um, uh, St. John talks about the idea of an antichrist, but he also talks about a spirit of the antichrist that's been around since Christ's time. Um, so this is more of a spirit of an anti-Mary that has infected our, our own culture. And so I, I started going back and looking at the, the roots of the feminist movement. And um, I, I, I've been overwhelmed by the, the, the amount of content that I've actually found um, that shows both the occult connections to, um, to the feminist movement but also just the very clear what it is that they were attacking. And, um, you know, Sue, Sue Ellen Browder, who wrote this book called Subverted, she, she used to work for Cosmopolitan magazine and she ended up getting fired when she was pregnant. Um, I had a, a conversation with her a few weeks ago and she said, you know, you could be anything you wanted to be at Cosmopolitan magazine. She said, but you could not be two things. You could not be a virgin and you could not be a mother. And I, I think the women's movement, you know, it, it's, it has done a great job of kind of smoke screening the, the evil that it's doing because of the fact that it made it appear like it was doing something good. We're going to work for the equality of women, um, all of these kinds that there was something good, a kernel of good in it. And yet their solution to the problem was really like, you know, let's just throw some gas and a match on it. Um, you know, we're, we're not actually helping women in effect through the women's movement. We're, we're actually making things significantly worse and we can see this, you know, even just looking at abortion statistics alone, which are just absolutely staggering. Mm. I think we've kind of become numb to them. Um, 3,000 a day. Uh, if you look at the Vietnam War, the, you know, Roe v. Wade was decided as that war was going on and as it was um, the casualty numbers were um, climbing, but also beginning, the war was tapering off. Well, those 58,000 servicemen were killed in the Vietnam War uh, total. And we kill that many babies in, in fewer than three weeks. Every three weeks, um, it happens in this country that there, there are something like 61,000. I can't remember what the math is. Um, but it's more than 58,000 every three weeks. And this is, has huge, huge effects on not, not just the population, um, not just because we don't have these children that God meant to be in the world, 
but also on the women that have been so damaged by this that we know that they can't see clearly, their vision is clouded um, because of the fact that they have these incredible wounds um, physically, psychologically, morally in their soul. And that's got to have a big ram, has huge ramifications for our culture. And then of course, you know, it's not like that happened by themselves. They're the men are involved in this. And so our whole culture is kind of reeling from um, the ramifications of abortion. And yet we, we can't see it. And that's, what's really pushes the, the women's movement is um, this, you know, there's so many things that they disagreed on, but they could all agree on abortion. And that's really what, what is driving it at this point. And um, they're the ones that are kind of controlling the narrative. Uh, this is another reason why I wanted to start Helena Daily because it seems like there aren't, um, there are just so few resources that are not within the grip of elite women who are kind of dictating how it is that we're meant to think, whether it's politics, fashion, um, Hollywood, uh, books that we read, all kinds of things. I had one friend who had this book. He got to an agent and um, the agent loved the book. She passed it on to different publishers and everybody loved the book until they got to the end and they realized it was a pro-life book. And they just said, we just can't sell this. We cannot sell a pro-life book. So it's it's just endemic, um, this very anti, um, anti-life message that, that is out there that's, that's being controlled by uh, a select group of women. And, and they're not really anxious to let anybody in and to offer a different perspective at this point. Mm. I, um, I was talking to, or I was listening to a podcast by uh, someone called Rachel Fulton Brown, who mm-hmm. I interviewed on this podcast a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, what caught my ear, she, she's an expert in uh, medieval history and mm-hmm. uh, particularly Marian devotion during that time. And she just made a remark. She's a recent convert, and she made a remark that she felt that until we rediscovered uh, a, a proper devotion to Mary that, mm-hmm. that engages people in a different sort of way, we couldn't evangelize the culture, we couldn't mm-hmm. change the culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she felt very strongly that she is the stepping stone. And I was interested in this, and... It was interesting hearing her talk about it because she spoke first of all of the the office of the Blessed Virgin Mary and how this ties it into a, a liturgical practice right. and just how the readings, the antiphons, for example, are so rich. Um, mm-hmm. um, and then also we, we were talking about Our Lady as the garden enclosed, mm-hmm. which comes from the Song of Songs, which interested me greatly because um, I feel that maybe there is a, uh, a some touching points through gardening <laughs> which is you know is a personal passion of mine. I come from England right. where we have all right. of these flower gardens and mm-hmm. I, I when I got to the US I always it always struck me that we don't see this when you if you mention a garden they all think of vegetables, which is fine. And, mm-hmm. and but they don't even talk about a garden. You talk about a yard, which sounds right. like something different. Right. Um, but the, the uh, traditionally, the enclosed garden not only um, was the place where Mary could dwell, it, is the, it, it, it represented her. So if you approach a church, you would have the cloistered garden where th- this is the beauty of Mary, if you like, that... Uh, mm-hmm. from whom Christ gets uh, his humanity. It's a forming of the material world beautifully that, uh, mm-hmm. that gives us an anticipation of the Garden of Eden. Right. Um, and so the, there's so much overlapping of all of this. And mm-hmm. then it just occurred to me that, first of all, um, 
it, it's that if I'm gardening as a man, traditionally guard, a gardener would be a, a male role. I'm, it's giving me a sense of how to nurture and relate to, if you like, the mm -hmm. uh, beauty in a tender way. Mm -hmm. um, and again, you see that disappearing from society today. Right. And right. then even the, the, the place of gardens, um, that if you go into the, what there used to be these botanical gardens in cities, they mm -hmm. now rip out the, 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 the gardens where you have cultivated varieties, man working in harmony with the, the mm -hmm. natural world. And everything is trying to recreate wilderness, which yeah, right. hist historically was the place yeah. that, that, you know, that where, there, where you went to meet the devil. Right, um, you want to avoid that. Uh -huh. And so the gardens become the dwelling place of the serpent Mm -hmm. rather than of Mary. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, um, where am I going with this? First of all, I just want to, I'm just reacting enthusiastically mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because I see so many connections, but also there needs to be some um, understanding also of, of the mm -hmm. way that men and women relate. Um, right. If women are asserting this role in what we hope is an ordered way that is natural mm -hmm. to them, men must also learn to relate to them and mm -hmm. to each other and the, the, mm -hmm. we all have to engage with this it, this is not mm -hmm. a competitive thing and mm -hmm. i think that harmony and beauty of the natural world um, gives us a sense of the the harmony and beauty of what you're talking about with right. the place of mary in mm -hmm. this culture mm -hmm. and so much of this is devotional and is rooted in prayer and worship right Right. Um, no, I would agree with you wholeheartedly. I think um, for me, absolutely, Our Lady is at the heart of this. I, I would come at it from a different direction, um, mm -hmm. not to say that prayer and understand going deeper devotion, that, that's part and parcel of it. But I think that yeah. on, a, on a practical level, there are several things that have to happen. Right. The first is I think women need to recognize just how demonic the women's movement has, has in fact been. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, there's this new sense of goddess worship. That's not an accident. Um, there's all kinds of, of things that are happening under the surface that I don't think women actually realize is part and parcel of the movement, um, kind of baked into it. Um, so that, that's the first thing is just that kind of recognition of what we've been fed and how, um, this is why women are so unhappy because we haven't been given real content of how it is that we can behave as women in a way that will bring us happiness and flourishing. Mm. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is we have to recognize that we as a culture and of women, we don't understand the virtues of Our Lady. Um, this is something that's, that's taken me at least 20 years to sort of wrap my mind around. Uh, you know, I was raised very typically American and, um, you know, ambition and going after my career, all of these kinds of things were very important. And, you know, it took me a long time to realize that I just simply didn't understand Our Lady because I didn't know what meekness meant, which, of course, it doesn't mean a doormat. It means actually someone who's um, in control of their emotions and responds the way that they want to. So both Christ and Our Lady are incredibly meek, which means that they, are, they have a powerful capacity to do what they want to do instead of being stirred by their emotions and having to react with rage or whatever. Um, I didn't understand... Um, submission or being obedient, any of these kinds of things that, you know, ring terribly in the ears, much like mm. being a homemaker, uh, ring terribly in the ears of, of contemporary women. And, you know, I think we also have to recognize that the women are the ones that have actually changed significantly in the past 50 years. If you look at 
men, you, you know, they're not, they haven't changed so dramatically except to be more confused and confounded about how do I respond to this woman? Mm. How do I, yes. um, how do I meet a good woman? How do I keep a good yeah. woman? Um, where are they? You know, these kinds of things. And, and I've suggested elsewhere, um, that we can look at, um, you know, the centuries of music and poetry that men have written to see very mm. clearly the kind of woman that, that they're drawn to. Um, they're not sonnets written about the nagging woman. Um, you know, they're, they're not sonnets or, or poetry or love, love songs written about um, the angry, raging, totally unhinged woman. Um, these are just not part and <laughs> parcel of the, the, what men think about or what men admire in women. And so um, I've been really encouraging women to start looking at that and seeing, you know, what is it that men love about women? And maybe that tells us something about ourselves that we don't get. And you certainly aren't going to find that in the, in the women's liberation um, movement, especially because they're, they're much more, the goal there is really focused on lesbianism. Um, and, and by and large, I mean, that's, that's part of the movement. It may not have fanned itself out that itself out that way in the culture. Um, but that's what you're going to find at that at the core of the movement. Um, and then the last thing I think is women have to remember that we are all made to be mothers, even if we're not physically mothers. Um, there's this, this, I, and this I encountered in a very unexpected place. There's a psychologist named Eric von Neumann who has written about, um, matriarchy and and studied every sort of goddess and and every kind of woman that's that's mm. been appreciated throughout history and he, he maps them on to this map and i was struck because i looked at it and all of these women were somewhere on this map whether it was the great mother the good mother the bad mother or the terrible mother and of course the great mother our lady is this emblem of that the terrible mother is the woman that tears apart her children dismembers them um, offers them up as sacrifice. And of course, every other woman is in, in between. Again, we have this impression that we can somehow either be mothers or we can be just kind of this genderless person. But in fact, every woman and the cr criteria that von Neumann uses is he said, he ex explains how every woman is meant to contain things. We take things into ourselves and then we make them better and we give them back. That's what a great mother does is she I take, you know, think about Our Lady. She takes in something and she gives it back to the world or gives it back to us in a, in a new and improved way when we offer things to her. Um, you can see that, and this is also even why we know that women are called to be spiritual mothers. Um, you know, think about um, religious women, religious. This is by and large what they do. They have this great relationship, of course, deep relationship with as spouse of Christ, but they also pray for the world and are interceding mm -hmm. For, for the world. So they're, they're engaged in that kind of containing. And you can even see this in the, the motifs. Um, you know, symbolically, women were represented as, as vessels or as ships um, carrying things to safety or um, even as ovens because we, we transform things when, when they're given to us. So I, I think that's the, the one, another key piece that we just have to recognize that what the women's movement did is it didn't step out of motherhood. All it did was turn these women into terrible mothers because how do they deal with their fertility? They destroy it. They manipulate it. They're using it for their own purposes. And oftentimes, very directly, they're using it um, for sacrifice or the bloody dismemberment of, of children through abortion. So it, it's, it, it just struck me as one of these things that we don't think about how women really are always called to be mothers, always called to this kind of basic relationship, um, even though we, we sort of think that we can sidestep mm. it and um, be very gender neutral, which again is another one of the goals of the, the women's movement um, was gender neutrality too. So yeah, I think those on a very practical level, trying to wrap our minds around those things um, 
is really important. And it's not separate, again, from the devotion that we need to have to understand who Our Lady is from the inside and, and her helping us to do that. Yes. I'm struck by what you were just saying, of the, that even as um, man, man is both body and soul, and mm -hmm. that what you're saying is that even in the role of prayer, the, mm -hmm. the religious, the nature yeah. of the prayer of female religious is different from the nature of the prayer yeah. of ma male yeah. religious. And, and, right. and so something which, of course, um, the secular world simply wouldn't be able to understand at all. Right. They can't oh. even understand why anyone would retreat to prayer. Right. And right. Never Much mind less. that there is a right. distinctive role in prayer and mm -hmm. complementary role of the two. Right. I never thought of that before. Yeah. Well, and what's more beautiful, and this was something that I, just was another insight that I came when I was working on one of my books, was uh, there's a deep connection between the fertility of our bodies and the type of, of and, and prayer. Um, you know, with pregnancy, we become uh, inseminated, and then the, the woman is the first one that she knows about this the child first, and then she nurtures it, and it grows, it grows, birth happens, and suddenly this child still needs nurturing, but eventually the child will leave her. I mean, if she's done her job well, she's made her job obsolete. I mean, that's what the good mother does, and this child becomes much more than she ever dreamed that it would be. It's, it's beyond her. Well, this is what happens in the spiritual life with religious, too. We can see this in, in St. Margaret Mary and Saint, um, even uh, Saint, or Mother Teresa of Calcutta, um, that there's a seed planted and they nurture it and nurture it and they think, um, you know, that maybe this is nothing, maybe this is something. And then eventually it becomes, you know, missionaries of charity in Calcutta um, or the sacred heart of Jesus or St. Faustina's uh, revelation. So there's this, this implanting that happens on a spiritual level that, that mimics what happens on the physical level. So you can see this mirroring happening within a woman. So I think it is, um, very clear that there's there the spiritual life is is in fact different for a woman than it is for a man. That's not to say that a man couldn't have these kinds of insights and develop it this way, but it's just to say women need silence and we need to be um, receptive because that's that's part of who God made us to be. It's not just our physical capacity or reality, but it's mimicked interiorly as well. Right, so that's beautiful. So when is this book coming out, Carrie? <laughs> Um, hopefully sometime between um, March and May of, of uh, 2019. Um, I'm okay. scrambling to get it done right now and then uh, we'll be getting to editing it. And um, yeah, I, I'm really excited about it. I think that there's um, that the women's movement kind of got a pass in terms of the, the origins of it, given the fact that the 1960s were nuts and that people were doing a lot of crazy things. And so that was just yeah. kind of assumed as part and parcel of that. And yet if we see how much has en endured of their initial legacy. Um, it's pretty horrifying what women have come to believe about themselves, um, given based on what they were projecting from the very beginning. So um, yeah, it's, but at the same time, it's also incredibly hopeful because I think there's a way out of it. It's not that we're just stuck, um, you know, dealing with this awfulness without a, um, you know, the, the life um, vest being tossed to us. Of course, our, our lady is here to help us with that. And I think even getting to the point where we can think about her as a real person, sort of just something mm. very saccharine or superficial um, is, was one of the goals of the book that I've been, I've been really focusing on um, just her role and how she's much more dynamic and fascinating and interesting than um, most of us think of her as um, because of our, our because of the way the world's portrayed her because we just haven't um, been able to see her in, a, in these new dimensions or different dimensions. I guess there's yes. nothing new about it. But, 
I'm, yeah, I'm glad you, you finished with it. We'll, we'll, we'll close the conversation there, but I think that's the important part. I, I can't wait to, to see the book and to read it, and I'm sure uh, we'll have a conversation about that when it, when it comes out. But of course, the, the, it's important that it is placed in the context of the, the Christian hope, which right. in our subject is embodied in, uh, uh, in Mary, um, in a way. And uh, of course, your own work um, has offered the hope first. So you've, you've offered the Marian option and on a steady basis, Helena Daly, which uh, is so important. Right, right. yeah. Um, no, and I, I think that's the big thing is, is that women have been tremendous evangelizers. I mean, that the, the face yeah. of Christianity has, has, was changed exceedingly through the influence of women. And I think we've forgotten that as women, that the role that we play in terms of bringing others to Christ. And so um, that's, that's another exciting piece of it is just to remind women who they are, that we, we're not victims, but in fact, um, we offer great hope and solace and, and love and can provide these things that uh, seemingly people are sort of grasping at only God being able to provide, but God provides through these, through women, um, these needs that, that all the world has. Right. Well, we'll finish there. Carrie Gress, it's been a, a great mm -hmm. pleasure to talk to you today. And, Thank you, David. And uh, we'll say goodbye to everybody listening. I hope you enjoyed it. You've been listening to the Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. For more information, go to thewayofbeauty.org. And if you want to buy the book, go to amazon.com. Mm -hmm.